Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. How marvelous, how wonderful is His love for me. You know, you can be amazed at that, and we should, but we're amazed at how marvelous and wonderful His love for us whenever you have a perspective on God that He is marvelous and wonderful. And when you think about how great God is, and you think about how wonderful and marvelous His love is, that stirs our hearts to worship. We have an incredible God. And some of y'all in this room right now, I know I talked with you before the service, last service, even I talked to a couple of different people who just kind of came in and they just literally kind of started vomiting their, their, their pain, their situations, their circumstances. And for them right now, what they're feeling is how marvelous and incredible and unattainable are the circumstances of their life. And I want to pray for them. And I don't know everyone because it may be you that I'm talking to as well. That you are right now in a marvelous, not good way, incredible, not in a good way, circumstance and situation that you just need that marvelous, incredible God to show his marvelous and wonderful love in this circumstance right now. You know who you are. Would you just lift your heart up to God? Father, you know our hearts. Even if some might be in self-denial that they need you, we need you, God. Lord, we absolutely, desperately need you. And you are a marvelous, wonderful God who marvelously and wonderfully loves us. And so, Father, thank you for that. And we worship you because you're an awesome and incredible God. God, there's not enough words that I could put to describe who you are. So Father, take our lives, take our words, take our hearts, take our minds, take our hands, take our feet, take everything, Lord, and we just offer to you as an act of worship. And Lord, for those right now in this room who are so overwhelmed, they feel like they're being sucked into a vortex of darkness. Father, I pray that you lift them up with your marvelous and wonderful love. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Y'all can be seated. What an incredible time to worship. Welcome to Grace Point for your first time with us today. Glad to have you as a part of our worship gathering. Listen, uh, we have been talking about greatness. We've been talking about moving from good to great. The crowds, uh, Jesus had lots of crowds, had lots of people that would hang out, look for a free meal every now and then, want a miracle here or there. And uh, that was quite common in Jesus. Many times did just that. Uh, sometimes, uh, uh, just many times, just incredible, defying all logic whenever he would either speak or he would do miracles. And so, but the crowds are good, but what, what God's calling us to is great, and that's to be a disciple. So he is moving us from good to great, and how he is getting us there is through what we're looking at right now, the Sermon on the Mount. So we're finding Matthew chapter 5. Elizabeth just read it uh, a few moments ago. We'll be there in a moment. But uh, as you think about it, I thought even preparing this message, we got to stop, pause, time out. We've got to define what greatness is. Uh, there's a lot of ideas of what greatness is out there, and they're very myopic. They're very, uh, very much contained in one kind of domain of life. 
Some people's greatness is in their title, in their position, their names and lights, where their name is in the pecking order of their work chain. And that is a form of greatness. If you're a CEO, if you're this, if you're a part of the C-suite, or maybe you're not, maybe you're just leading a company and you're, you're on a team, maybe you're uh, leading your basketball team. There's lots of positions that we can take in this world that afford us greatness, if you will. But that's not enough. You can be great if your bank account's greater than my bank account or other people's great. That's greatness. You can be, you can be a millionaire. You can be the millionaire next door. You can, all that kind of stuff is a form, a kind of greatness. You can be an influencer. You can have thousands or tens of thousands or millions of followers out there, but you know how that is. They like you one day and they're canceling you the next day. And so is that what greatness is? No, greatness is so much more than that. It's not a, a a greatness in a particular box. You could be great in in the gym. You might be great at your video game. You may be the, the highest ranked person in whatever those little domains. But that's only one area of your life. What about the totality of your life? We're talking about wholeness greatness. Jesus is wanting wholeness greatness. Whenever he's talking about about the blessed flourishing life of, of Matthew chapter 5 that we've been talking about for two weeks, that's really a life that he's calling us to body, soul, and spirit, because that's how we love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how greatness is needs to be looked at. I, and here's, again, my definition. You work on your definition and send it to me. I may adopt yours. But this is my working definition of greatness. I have a short one. I have a long one. Here's the short one. Greatness is an inside work. Most of what I just mentioned about what greatness is in our world around us is measured from an outside in. You're great because of your bank account. You're great because of your position. You're great because of your title. That's an outside in. This greatness that we speak of is from the inside out. But therefore, and then it is seen and it is experienced on the outside. Okay? Hang on to that. Because if you don't get greatness right... You might put your ladder against the wall, climb that ladder, and at the end of your life, find your ladder's leaning against the wrong wall. I don't want to be here. I want to be over there. I've missed what greatness is, and I want to get to what greatness is. Greatness is the inside work that is seen and experienced by those on the outside. About a year and a half ago, Dave Penner, I see you're in the room, Andrew and I went uh, to a Catholic monastery. Not exactly what normally a person of uh, of an evangelical faith will go to, but I did. Absolutely loved it. It was a powerful time where we studied the ancient practices and the disciplines uh, of the faith that's been done in the churches for years and years and years. And it was an incredible time. I walked away with a simple statement. Wasn't necessarily handed to me. It was one of those that's morphed in and over the time. And you've heard me say it a lot, so I'm giving you the origin of it now. But on that on that journey into into uh, silence and solitude, and then that time of of meditation, I I, I I wake up with a goal that every day that I would hopefully, at the end of the day, look, lead, love, and listen a bit more like Jesus. At the end of my day, that I would look a little bit more like him, listen a little bit more like him, lead a little bit more like him, and love a little bit more like him. And if I can do that, then I feel like I am moving into the greatness that God is really calling us to. Here's the longer form of the definition. Greatness is 
me becoming a bit more like Jesus every day. So I am as Jesus is and I do as Jesus does. There's a being element and there's a doing element there. I am as Jesus is and I do as Jesus does. But that is me becoming a bit more like him so much so that those closest to me. Okay, very key phrase, but let me finish it out. Those closest to me see Jesus in me and experience Jesus through me. Why do I emphasize the closest to me? Because believe it or not, I know this. I can impress you. I can impress you with my godliness and live a double life on the backside. I can, I can smooth you and I can, not, 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 I've done the Christian thing long enough. I can fake it up here and it not be the real thing. The reality is, is that what he's wanting is all of me. And the thing is, is that those closest to me, because here's, here's what I heard is the definition of what success is, is when those who know you the best love and respect you the most. So those who actually know me and are with me, those the closest to me, they see Jesus and they experience Jesus. That I'm looking and I'm leading and I'm loving and I'm listening a bit more like Jesus every single day. How do we get there? We've been talking about the Beatitudes. This is just the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. Five different messages in Matthew from Jesus. This is the first one. It's not the only one. Three chapters, though. It's probably maybe the largest one in there. Five different messages. And every, in the beginning, the Beatitudes, and by the way, that Beatitudes is a Latin word we, uh, of, uh, uh, of the translation. It's a transliteration. Beatitudes is a transliteration of the Latin word. And it, it's coming from the Greek um, Word idea of blessing, of flourishing, uh, of being fortunate, even some translations being happy, and I've talked to you about that. I don't feel like that's a accurate in our English language definition. But here's, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you find it divided up with the introduction, and then the main body, and then the conclusion. I want to point that out to you, because if you notice, we're still in the introduction. This is our third week in the introduction of just the Sermon on the Mount, but we're at the conclusion. If I am, and why I emphasize that is if I am living out the Beatitudes, I am becoming a kingdom person of Jesus. I'm a part of the kingdom of Jesus. And why I emphasize that is because the Sermon on the Mount starts with the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It ends with the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He tells us later on to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. He's instructing us on how to pray. He tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So the kingdom of God's pretty big. And 37 times in the book of Matthew, you're going to find the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And I emphasize that because it's so important that we understand that more than our loyalty to a party, to a nation, our loyalty and our belonging is to the kingdom of heaven. First and foremost above everything else. And the Beatitudes help set the process, starting with the poverty of spirit, working our way all the way through, set a process in place that I'm becoming the part of the kingdom of God. Now, there are nine Beatitudes, and we talked about those over the past two weeks, but let me point this out. There's the front and there's the back. There's the nine on the front that if the nine on the front, the nine Beatitudes on the front are true in my life, the two metaphors that we're going to look at today are going to be true of my life. It's a cause and effect thing. 
If I'm living out those Beatitudes in my life, then guess what's going to happen? This is what's going to happen, these two metaphors. The metaphors is my identity in the kingdom of God. And why do I say my identity? Look at your Bibles there and open them up to Matthew chapter 5. And I've taken a quick snapshot of my Bible, and I like to mark in my Bible and highlight different things. And this is one of the things I pointed out in my study this week, was it makes it very clear you are something. You are the salt of the earth. If the Beatitudes are true in Mike McDaniel's life, guess what? This is what's going to be true as an effect of that. If this cause is true, then I'm going to be the salt of the earth. And then also, you are the light of the world. And by, in fact, the way the you are's are stated there, it is in the emphatic. It's not, hey, you might want to be the salt of the earth. Or, hey, you might want to light up the world. It's no, you are. <laughs> you are. Emphatically, you are my salt of the earth. You are my, uh, as Jesus would be putting this, you are my light in this world. That's the role that we play as we live out the Beatitudes. That that process of being a kingdom follower of Jesus, a disciple and apprentice of Jesus. So, how do people encounter me? How do they encounter my saltiness? How do they encounter my light? If I'm the light of the world, emphatically, if I'm the salt of the earth, emphatically, how is it that they encounter me? The saltiness, how do they experience me? The light, how do they see me? You, there's a phrase around here that we say every single Sunday. I don't know if you realize this, but we actually have meaning behind it. It's a part of our values. We say live sent, but it actually has definition to it. Is that I would show and share Jesus in my everyday conversations with everyday people. Pretty simple, right? But notice the two front words on that. The showing and the sharing. The salt and the light. The light and the salt. Now, the whole concept here is that this is what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. Is that we automatically, as apprentice of Jesus, that we will go into this world and we will show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Greatness is Jesus' work inside of me. So that other people can see and experience that very work of grace. So, let's talk about these two encounters. Because you got to unpack the metaphors, okay? Metaphors can be taken too far or they can be taken too little, okay? I don't want to take it too far. I want us to understand what the metaphor means. But I also want you to not miss. Actually, can you put that verse back up there on the screen uh, from my Bible? I don't want you to miss that he gives us a what not is a part. Saltiness is not supposed to lose its flavor. Light is not supposed to be hidden. So as much as you're the light, as much as you're the salt, you're in, there's certain knots to this as well. So I want to talk about what it is, and then I want to talk about what not it's about. Uh, let's talk about, the, first of all, the experience, the experiential, experiential side of us, the saltiness of us, all right? We all have that saltiness about us. I mean this from a spiritual sense. Your body has salt in it, only a small, very small portion of it, but it's, it has salt in it. But we have salt everywhere. We go to the store and you can find Morton salt and iodized salt and kosher salt and sea salt and Himalayan salt and uh, rock salt and garlic salt and Epsom salt and salt lick if you have cows. And so you got all kinds of salt that you can go out and buy. But we don't fully, I don't think in our culture, understand what salt was 
in the Roman, Greco-Roman world. How important it was in the Jewish community. How it had spiritual significance in that. So let's just take whatever we value on salt and let's just take it up a few bars because here's, here's just a reality check for you. I did the etymology study on the word salary this week. It's a fun little study. Go do it. All right. The word salary comes to mean from a French Anglo history comes to mean salt money. It refers to the time when the Roman soldiers were paid salt money. They were paid money to buy salt because salt was what they needed to put on their food. It was what they needed for all the things that I'm going to mention. It was actually a very important part. In fact, where we get our idiom today, the person is not worth their salt. You've heard that. It means they're getting paid, but they're not worth their salt. They're not worth what they're getting paid. It literally comes from the historical meaning of that. So what is the value of salt? When people experience salt from you, as you're living out the apprentice life of Jesus, they should be experiencing this, a covenant relationship with God. Now, let's just look at our culture today. Emphasis on the word relationship right now, because we don't do relationships very well. They're shallow, they're cyclical, they're seasonal, they're emotional, they're whimsical. Our, our, our emotional EQ is pretty weak across our land. We, I would compare in the church, I'm saying the church at large, and maybe that would also include us, is that many people have a dating relationship with Jesus and they're not married to Jesus. And they have a dating relationship in that they, uh, they, 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 they want to be with Jesus when Jesus is meeting their needs. But they also want the freedom to not be with Jesus when they want to go do their thing. But they like Jesus when he's affirming him. They're going to swipe right, but they're going to swipe left when Jesus starts telling them to repent. That's kind of a dating relationship that many people have with Jesus. The word covenant is the whole idea of a relationship that is binding, that is beautifully bound in love. Now, let me say this, covenant relationships and covenants are throughout the scripture. I count 38 different covenants between kings and kingdoms. God made 11 different covenants in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. There are bilateral covenants in the, in, in the, in the, in the New Testament where it's like, I, if you do this, I'll do that. The Mosaic Covenant being one of those. And then there are unilateral covenants in the Old Testament whenever God made a covenant with Abraham that he was going to do something. So there are many different forms of covenants. Covenants also came with different kinds of exchanges. Obviously, when he made a covenant with the people of Noah that he would not flood the earth anymore, he gave them a rainbow. There are times that there's a, there's a symbol of a handshake. There are times that there's, there's, a, that, that there's a blood covenant, a blood, uh, covenant of, of sealing covenants together that way. But there's also what's called a salt covenant. And that salt covenant is referred to multiple times in the Old Testament, Ezra, second Corinthians, second Chronicle, excuse me, Numbers, Ezekiel, and then Leviticus. Let me read Leviticus to you. It says, do not leave the salt of the covenant Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to your offerings. Now I don't have time, and we have an Old Testament professor in the room that could probably do a much better job than this. I just want to point out this, that a covenant relationship 
And salt had a definite meaning in the Jewish community. Matthew is written to a Jewish community. So the idea of salt being a meaningful spiritual connection point, absolutely very important. So when people experience Mike McDaniel, they should experience that Mike has a covenant relationship with Jesus. The second thing that salt does, and this is not rocket science to you, but it has a preservative element to it. Now, we don't use it so much for that, but if I can take you to African villages right now, I can take you to fishing communities where they take the fish and they dry it out on the land. They literally, uh, they catch it one day, they flay it out, and then they put salt on it and they let it dry in the sun all day long. And they'll eat on it for a long time because it has a preservative element. The Bible speaks of, of our, our, our tongues, our mouths, our words, having power of flames, de- destruction. Or our words can have a beautiful preserving element as it says in the book of Colossians chapter four, verse six, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. So there's a preservative element. There's a covenant relationship element, but there's also, and this is what I really think that Matthew was getting at or Jesus was getting at in Matthew. And there's a flavor element. When you think of salt and I think of salt, most of the time we're thinking of salt in the terms of a flavor, a seasoning, a spice out there. Um, when you think about different flavors in this world, even Job, the oldest book in the Bible says, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Salt is one of the, the rare ingredients that throughout time, 6,000 BC is when they believe they've discovered salt, has been used in, in, in tribes and peoples around the world timelessly. Why am I giving such a history on salt? Because you're the salt of the earth. What was Jesus saying? He says, if the salt loses its taste. He didn't just say it once. In Luke chapter 14, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salt? Uh, uh, how shall its saltiness be restored? It can't. What is the saltiness that he speaks of here? What is the flavor that me, as a, as a follower of Jesus, what do I bring to this world? Go back to the Beatitudes. If I'm a mercy giver, if I'm a peacemaker, if I'm walking with a pure heart in all my relationships, guess what? This world is longing for mercy givers. This world is longing for peacemakers. And Lord knows we need them. Guess what? That's the flavor of this world that this world doesn't offer that we as Jesus apprentices, we get to bring to this world if we're walking with Jesus. Think about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's Those are qualities, those are flavors, if you will, of the fruit of the Spirit that the world does not bring out in us. And he goes on and he says, Verse 13, if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty be restored? It is no longer good except to be thrown and trampled under people's feet. Now, again, time out. Did Jesus fail chemistry class? Because salt or sodium chloride is a stable compound. And it actually doesn't lose its flavor. So what is it that would cause salt to lose its flavor? If you dilute it. If you take pure salt 
and you put, start mixing and mingling other things in that break down the purity of that salt, that salt becomes diluted and is no longer a preservative. It is no longer as flavorful, if any flavor at all. It loses the purity of the covenant relationship. You see so much tied up in this metaphor. And the fact is that we cannot lose that saltiness. What happens is when we dilute ourselves with the things of this world, we lose the saltiness. We lose it. Life principle for you. We're called to be in the world, but the world isn't to be in us. This is something that we're going to fight for the rest of our life to be actively a part of the world, making a difference in the world, but not letting the world come and be a part of our soul. Do not love the world or the things of the world for the things of the world. uh, uh, For those who love the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And by the way, we could make a laundry list as long as my arm on each one of those of what is the pride of life and what is this. And what is, if we start, here it is, if our values start getting mixed and diluted down, we lose our saltiness. We lose the flavor that we bring to this world. We lose what this world is so desperately longing for in the mercy giving, in the righteous living and seeking after and hungering and thirsting for because we start filling ourselves up with other things. It's ironically that this past week was Martin Luther King's uh, birthday. And he, as he became the pastor of Dexter uh, Church in Montgomery, Alabama, only church that he ever pastored, he preached a message there that became one of his, one that he kept in his hip pocket, if you so to speak. He would preach it in lots of different places. The title of the message was The Transformed Nonconformist. The Transformed Nonconformist. It's based on Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed. Do not, I'll, I'll, let me put some paraphrase in there. Do not be deluded. Do not be compromised. Do not let the world become a part of you, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Martin Luther goes, King goes on to say this. He says, we need to recapture the gospel glow of the early Christians who were nonconformist to the truest sense of the word and refused to, to shape their witness according to the mundane pattern of the world. Willingly, they sacrificed their fame, their fortune, and life itself on behalf of the cause that they knew to be right. What if we took all of our passions, all of our pride, all of our desires, and we push them to the center of the table and we back away from it and we say, God, I don't want that to be so much a part of my life, my job, my title, my fame, my fortune, whatever, whatever's on that table. I don't want that to be a part of my life to the point that dilutes who I am because of you. I don't want to be diluted. I want to be salty. Number two, so they experience the saltiness. They see the illumination. Who are they illuminating? Who are we illuminating? We're illuminating, hopefully, Jesus. We're showing and we're sharing Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Now, the word light, the concept light, throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, even other, other literatures beyond, used light. In fact, even Zen Buddhism today, the light in me greets the light in you. 
The whole idea of light is a very spiritual thing in all religions of the world, okay? Or I'll say many religions that I can think of in the world. But pay attention to the nuance of where our light is, what our light does, and how our light functions. Verse 14, look at it. You are. Emphatic. You are. The light, not a light, but the light of the world. Would you just let, let that be a little heavy, okay? Don't just skip past that. The world, let me reverse engineer this, the world out there is needing light. Where are we going to find the light? We're going to find the light from you and me who are following and living after the ways of Jesus, who is being like Jesus and doing like Jesus in all our ways. Philippians tells us, in the midst of this crooked generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Isaiah the prophet has a lot to say about light. The great prophet, the suffering servant, spoken of in Isaiah, referring to Jesus. Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am the the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. Notice that, that ties into the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I uh, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant. Don't you love that word in there? Don't you know what that is? For the people, light to the nations. There's a, that whole covenant relationship enables us to be a light. To the nations, Isaiah 60, verses 1, arise and shine. All right, you've heard that. Tell your kids that in the morning. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is, has risen up on you, and the nations shall come to your light. The light is important. The light for the nations and the world is important. What does light do? Light dispels darkness. It kicks out darkness. Darkness, if you notice this, does not kick light out. Light kicks darkness out. Turn these lights out in this room right now. It's going to be completely dark. All we have to do is get rid of the darkness is turn the light on. Jesus, in John's gospel, chapter 1, is the light that shines in the darkness, even though the darkness can never extinguish it. The light of Jesus is that light. The light illumines the truth. So it not only helps get rid of the darkness, but it actually shows us what is truth, what is right, what is good. Now, and, I, and I want to emphasize this because there was a time in my life, I can tell you about 23 or 24, I can't remember the exact year, but I had this idea of what I wanted. I wanted it, it was a job. I wanted that job. I worked to get that job. I built my resume so that I could do that job. I pray, oh, I enlisted God in it, okay? I pray, God, give me that job. I network, God, give me that job. I was doing everything to get that job. And I didn't get that job. But what I did get was a Bible verse. Consolation prize, I don't know, but a pastor gave me this Bible verse in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. I probably prayed it over people a thousand times, I don't know, in the course of my life. Proverbs 4, 18. The path of the righteous is brighter and brighter as the day is full. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter as the day is full. 
See, what happens is as I continue to walk in righteousness, as I continue to walk in those beatitudes, as I continue to live with Jesus, that pathway is going to become clearer and clearer and clearer. Even though I want this, God didn't want that for me. And you know what? I can tell you this, and I think I'm pretty confident in this. If God had given me this, I wouldn't be on this stage right now. And I don't regret this right here one minute. The path of the righteous is brighter and brighter as the day is full. Listen, also Ephesians chapter 5 verse 9 says the fruit of light is found in that we know what is good, we know what is right, we know what is true. What's good versus what is bad. What is right versus what is wrong. What is true versus what is a lie. And there's a lot of lies out there. Number three, light points people to Jesus. It points people to Jesus. Look at verse 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before me. No, no, again, you're letting your light, okay? You're not having to generate the light. You're letting the light that, that is in you shine. So the other person will see your good works, and what will they do? They'll glorify your Father in heaven. See, at the end of our game, the end of this whole light and living in the light is not to make myself great. It's to make Jesus great. And if I can point to his glory... And if I can seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, if I can make my life about him and I'm going to point people to him, then the light of Jesus is coming out of me. Again, I want to point out that Jesus, it almost sounds like a contradiction, right? John chapter 8 verse, verse 12 says, I'm the light of the world. How can, okay, hold it. Am I the light of the world or is Jesus the light of the world? Am I the light of the world? Is Jesus the one? Whoever follows me will walk, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so then you compare that and bring that next to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. It says, you're the light of the world. I'm the light of the world because Jesus is the light of the world. And because Jesus is in me makes me the light of the world. Don't, don't just let that set, let that set in. Because let me give you, illustrate it this way. 238,900 miles from here is a thing suspended in space called the moon. Now, some of y'all know where I'm going to go with this immediately. In three days, we're going to have a full moon. The, food, the moon right now is waxing, so it's, it's getting larger and larger. In three days, we're going to have a full moon. You're going to step out in your backyard, and you're going to remember this message, and I know you're going to do this, because it's going to be a clear night, and you're going to step out, and you're going to, you're going to see the moon, and it's going to be bright. When you do that, remember that that moon has zero, zero energy of its own to generate light. You know this from grade one earth science, that everything that that moon shines, shines from the sun. The sun is 93 million miles away from that moon. What is it, though, that causes something 93 million miles away to hit the surface of this thing that would shine 238,900 miles to yours and my backyard. There is a mineral compound that's on the surface, a dusty compound on the surface of the moon called regolith. If you understand that that powdery mineral substance is actually the reflection. 
That's the substance that creates the reflection that gets the the moon's light to this earth. Listen, there's not my light greets the light in you. The only light I have is the light of Jesus. And the only way I can reflect him to you is because he's in me. He is the regolith that is in me. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ covers us from all our sins. See, it's the light of Christ that gives us the light, that gives us the beauty of being able to be free from our sin. Listen, and you don't take that light and hide it under a bushel or hide it under a lampstand. You put it on the shelf and you make it shine. So I ask you today, first of all, do you have the light of light of Christ in you? Secondly, secondly, listen very carefully. Are you actively, intentionally letting that light shine? Because we're the light of the world. That's a That's a responsibility we carry. But not only that, come back to the salt. Have you allowed your soul, your life to become diluted with anything of this world that dilutes you down from being what God called you to be? Bow your heads with me, please. If you're here today and you cannot with all of your heart and your soul say, I am a child of Jesus. It will not start by you getting up and saying, I'm going to go out and shine a light and I'm going to go out and salt up this world. No, no, no. It starts with you in a poverty of spirit and you realizing, I need Jesus. I can't do it. I can't muster up enough light and I can't be salty enough. I need Jesus. If you're here today and you don't have Jesus, please right now, right where you sat, just tell Jesus, Jesus, I need you. I want you. I know you came for me and I want you a part of my life from now on. If you're here as a believer and you've allowed your salt to become diluted, or you've hidden your light from shining it, please let your light so shine before the people around you, men and women, that they'll see your good works. They'll experience that salt in you. And they will glorify your Father in heaven. We have a role to play. And that role is letting Jesus be Jesus in us so that we can be the salt and the light in this world. Father, it's such an incredible reality that you would choose us, broken and imperfect people, to be your salt, the flavor this world desperately needs, mercy givers, peacemakers, all the fruit of the Spirit, Lord. You, you, you make that become reality. And that, Father, you would call us to be light to the nations, 
light to the far off places that have never even heard of you. Father, I pray that in this space right now, you'll help us to understand how we are in our relationship with you. Renew, restore, for some of us, Lord, establish that covenant relationship. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Scent.